0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Houndsom.
0: And I'm Megan Lee.
1: In this episode, I am really excited to talk about a book I was invited to read last year. The premise drew me in immediately. The last of humanity, fighting to exist above an inhospitable earth. The only thing keeping them safe, their city, built and maintained by plants, magically manipulated by a chosen few. A husband and wife, fighting to save their marriage, but also their world and how that struggle forms the very fabric of the narrative. The Surviving Sky draws from fantasy, sci-fi, cli-fi, and even thriller to create a book that speaks on many levels, and we are very lucky to be joined by its author, Krithika H. Rao, to explore not only this meeting of genres, but what human society might look like in the face of catastrophic change. Krithika, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself and your work to our listeners?
2: Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Krithika H. Rao. I'm the author of The Surviving Sky. It is um, the first of a trilogy. It's an epic science fantasy. It's uh, based on Hindu philosophy. And as Lucy said, um, it follows the story of this husband-wife duo who are trying to save their marriage um, as they're trying to save their floating plant city from crashing into jungle storms. I wrote this during the pandemic, so there's, <laughs> there's a lot of anger in this uh, book, just in general for society and kind of mirrored between the relationship that Ahelia and Iravan have, the two protagonists have with each other as well. And um, it's complex and lush and um, I've
1: loved living in this world for as long as I have. So excited to share it with everyone. I'm really excited that um, it's finally going to be out. Um, Well, actually, by the time you're all listening to this episode, it's pretty much going to be out now. So I'm really excited about that. Um, And I'm excited to be able to talk to you about it because, you know, I read it a while ago. And so, you know, I thought this is a great time to kind of revisit it. And so as you were saying, the surviving sky blends Hindu philosophy uh, with these other genres like science fiction, climate fiction, fantasy, um, and even thriller, uh, to create a really memorable read. But I wanted to ask you, how did you get these genres to work together so well? And do you think we rely on genre labels too much?
2: The first part of your question, which is how I got these genres to work really well, presumes that I kind of did it intentionally, which I did not. I uh, I, I kind of threw all the stuff that I like together in a book and I was like, well, let's see how this works. And it, and it did fortunately for me like no brilliance involved there at all it was very much like what do I like throw it together let's see if it works it did so but to, to your question about do we rely on genre labels too much I think yes I think we do and for The Surviving Sky for example like I I really like reading fast-paced work and at least at that time in my life when I was um, kind of writing this this was during the pandemic etc i was really looking for a world to get lost in and um so i created one and if if i was creating a world that i kind of wanted to be in and as i said i kind of wanted all the stuff that i really enjoy together bits of romance you know some cool tech stuff um fantasy and original world that kind of thing for me i think as a reader it it feels it feels y- weird to kind of say this that i don't rely on genre labels myself because of course i do like they kind of like um you're kind of conditioned you know to like certain genres i think the more you read it without realizing you kind of know those patterns and you know those beats etc you probably go seeking them so in my case i did i did use thriller pacing because i really enjoy reading thrillers and i kind of grew up reading thrillers a lot i really enjoy science fiction but not the hard science fiction of um of our world which you know how rockets work and that kind of thing like i i i love reading that kind of stuff but i can't write that for the life of me so i kind of created a world where i can understand the science and there's logic involved um and rules etc but also fantasy because um because it's secondary world fantasy and I, i get to create stuff i don't necessarily need to rely on real world mechanics of things so i feel like readers to a large extent, don't necessarily care very much about genre labels. I think they're, they're looking for something that they can enjoy. They can, you know, maybe learn from, but be entertained. And at the heart of it, I just wanted Surviving Sky and Rages to be an entertaining story. And I kind of put together stuff that I find entertaining and interesting. So I don't think readers necessarily rely on genre labels too much, but I think as writers, especially in publishing, we can we kind of get a little caught up in it, and we kind of have to because you know it's being pitched as a certain book; it's it has to occupy that space in the bookshelf. So when I'm writing, I don't think about it too much, but you know when my agent and I are kind of pitching it, et cetera, then then those labels kind of retroactively come in place. So like, let's
1: hone in on the climate fiction kind of element for a second here Um, because I found the book it obviously you you mentioned it was um, written during the pandemic you know it's uh, wildly topical Um, with I mean today I had a mini earth rage today outside the window I've never seen the rain come down um, quite as hard (laughs) as that it was kind of frightening Um, but you know climate change is an ever-present threat and an ever-present news story like in everybody's life at the moment Mm -hmm. Is there a message in, about ecology, about the threats of climate change, you know, in your book?
2: I think there is a message, but it's um, it's pretty layered, I would say. I won't say that's the first, you know, message that anybody would overtly extract from the book, which is strange to say because this is a plant city and there's jungle storms and obviously this is a story of survival. Climate change is real in our world. It's happening, right? And it's human induced to a large extent, you know, we are all grappling with it. But the question that really kind of interested me was um, how we're dealing with it, right? You still have billionaires in their jet planes, you know, uh, going places, not really caring very much. You have governments still digging oil, you know, creating pipelines and that kind of thing. Um, And then you have people who really care about the climate, not, not activists, necessarily but just regular people you and I who uh, maybe are trying to do our best living in this world in you know with the circumstances and resources that we have you know knowing that we don't necessarily hold a lot of power when it comes to controlling our climate like collectively as a species we do but individually and maybe as individual groups of people we don't necessarily have that so I've kind of wanted to retain that human perspective when it comes to climate change and the minute you kind of start thinking about that you or about different sections of society, and especially power and privilege, and especially when it comes to climate and survival. Certain questions start coming up about, you know, who's survival, um, who has power, and how is that power dictating um, the world and the climate and in surviving skype? It is a group of architects um, who are magical architects, essentially, who are manipulating the world. And it is their histories and, you know, their stories, et cetera, which are exalted. And people like Ahilia, who is not an architect, who doesn't have magic, she has no history. And so she almost, in a way, doesn't have a role in survival. She's very much like, she and people like her, very much just like passengers who are in this, like, plant city dependent on architects like her husband to kind of help them survive. And she doesn't like that. And she was like, I should have a role to play in my survival. Much like I have felt, you know, when when I kind of hear about these, um about billionaires or, you know, about people who are making those decisions about our planet and our earth uh, our earth. It just it I have felt that I've I've felt powerless and I felt the need to be able to do something that can be effective and that can make a difference and that, you know, we actually have a role to play in our survival. In the surviving sky, um, those plant cities, they float above jungle storms and life has evolved to a place where they no longer actually live on the planet, but they live a little above the planet, kind of hovering over the planet in the stratosphere um, in these plant-made cities. And one of the things that Ahilia wants to do very early on in the story is to go back to the planet and find a way to make the planet inhabitable despite the jungle storms, you know, all of that. Like she's like, this is our planet. We should return there. We should live there. We used to once upon a time. So we, sh- we should do that again. I think that's a huge part of her arc is trying to figure that out. Whereas her husband who has the magic, et cetera, and, you know, lives above, c- controls the magic that allows people to live above the ground is very much like, well, we escaped from the jungle. We're never going back. Survival is escape and you kind of have to live with that. And I think in some ways it does mirror also the question that we have right now, about our planet being habitable versus, you know, going away to a different planet maybe. And just the choices and power and privilege that kind of arises from that question. So all of that was there in the surviving sky, but I won't say it was a very overt theme. I think it kind of evolved with my own like thinking around this kind of stuff and, without having to take a stand on one or the other. So I I think like with Ahelia and Naravan, I was able to explore both of those just thought experiments really.
0: From you talking about this, I can also see a lot of kind of the pandemic in there where you say like wanting to make a difference and be in control of how you survive and do something while you're trying to survive. I totally get and then, but survival is escape uh also get that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you were mentioning your protagonist you've got a husband and wife team and they've been married for quite some time and like this is quite unusual for just it's usually it's like the romance people fall in love it's like new relationships if you have a long-term relationship, you know, it's not until like a second, third book or so on, you know, so this was, you know, it's really refreshing, but why do you think that we, we don't see more of this in Specfic?
2: I don't know because I, I certainly am finding out that there's a huge hunger for this kind of dynamic. Um, I think when people are excited about the book, one of the big things they're excited about is to see older, you know, protagonists and and protagonists in established relationships. I think that meet cute. I will say the meet cute factor has a lot of like interest as well. You know, the first look and the first time it's so full of possibilities. And I think also genre wise and um you know just plot beat wise there's always just like and they lived happily ever after Ta-da, you know the end and but I, I wanted to situate my story where most stories end which is like with a couple getting married and getting together because because I feel like marriages can be very very fraught with so much emotion. And especially when you have two people like Ahelia and Uraban who are so wildly different and yet so similar, but they come from such different places in their lives and their world has convinced them, um, that they are so different. And they are like one of them is born with magic and has all the power and privilege. And one of them has none of it at all. And yet they're in love. I think they're really faced with the question, is love enough? You know, and you, and I think a lot of stories stop there with the message of, Oh, love is enough. And, I wanted to explore the shape of that love and to explore the different facets of it. And um, and to me, these older protagonists, I think, were just so much more intriguing than younger ones that you generally tend to see in science fiction and fantasy. Like, these are two hyper-competent people who are at the top of their game. Eravon is a senior architect in his city. Um, so l- literally at the top of his game, like, there is nobody else who is as good at his Good at the job as as he is, so he belongs to a council of people much like himself who essentially rule rule their city. Um, and it was interesting for me to see see this book and explore this story from a from point of view of the person who who thinks they know all of the answers. They have all of the answers, you know, for their world. They have all of the knowledge. They have all of the competence. And to kind of see what what happens when you take away maybe some of their power, take away some of their magic and i think at the bottom of it was also a personal understanding that as adults we don't have all the answers <laughs> i think i think science fiction fantasy and often the world sometimes especially when you're younger will convince you that you have all the you will have all the answers when you kind of grow up and as an adult now in my own 30s i'm like wow there is so much i don't know and also so much that i can't control or do which is you know when you kind of hit that age it's it's a bit of a rude awakening um because you think that once you grow up you you'll You'll know everything and, you know, the happily ever after will kind of begin. And then you're like, ooh, there is, there is an after, but I don't know if it's happily ever after given uh, the kind of world that we live in and how little control we have. Um, so I think to a large extent, seeing these older protagonists, over 30s protagonists deal with themselves and their world when they do have knowledge and they do have power and they do have competence. And then to kind of realize that maybe that's not enough. And then if that's not enough, then what is? Um, so those are questions that I kind of started off with. For me, Ahilia and Nirav and knowing they were married, um, and older, like that was one of the first things, um, for me when I was writing the book. That was one of the first things that I came up with. Like, yes, this is, this is the lens I want to explore this world from. And a huge part of it was just understanding my own growth as a millennial in this world where, we think we um, know everything, or at least we grew up with that understanding or maybe even like hope and saw a whole bunch of wars so saw our planet go to shit, you know, <laughs> saw the pandemic and realized,
1: holy shit. <laughs> and realized we, we still can't afford to buy a house.
2: <laughs> yeah, we still can't afford to do so much. So,
1: yeah, it, I think there
2: was a lot of my own frustration with the world and everything kind of poured in through Ahilia and a Robin and...
1: And I feel like a lot of people will relate to that. I mean, I super relate to it um, because, well, not only because I am in my middle thirties actually slightly more than that um, creeping upwards there but also because you know like I'm my newest book also has a, a, a central husband and wife who are in their mid-thirties so it's like oh my god another book <laughs> um, and and also who have marriage issues and it, I you know what's I think another reader has said like um, in a review like you kind of want to knock their heads together sometimes because mm. they're so, it's so frustrating that they won't talk to each other and they're not honest with each other um, and I'm doing exactly the same thing in my book um (laughs) just because you know like the drama um I, but, but also i
2: feel like you know and, and i totally get it like you know characters not talking to each other is you know is a bit of a pet peeve for me as well but i often find like at least an adult communication um and and also with ahelia and niravan it's not so much that they don't talk to each other it's so it's so much that they, it's it's that when they talk to each other they're not saying the things that they should be saying so they do talk to each other and they do understand each other and they do interpret each other well but they also have these like giant egos and pride and you know all that hurt and angst and and talking is never as simple as talking I mean if it if it were we would have like no conflict in the world right like people would talk to each other and be done uh, but clearly, as social media sh- is shows us all the time words are not necessarily always enough it's not just about talking um, and it's not also not often about like what you're saying it's how you're saying and you know who you're saying it to and the time you pick and all of those things so I think Ahiliya and Niravan, their communication is so fraught with all of these things and their own history and their own personal struggles, you know, and their own place in the world and how they see each other in relation to that and how they mirror all of their hurt and anger and love and outrage and all of that back to each other ad infinitum. That makes the communication so dicey and so full of drama for us as readers and for me as a writer to kind of, you know, pick those moments.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why, um, you know, it really comes across that they care for each other deeply. But, you know, they have these internal and external pressures that are tearing them apart throughout the book. And I really liked, I thought that was really clever, because it's just like, you know, their marriage is a kind of microcosmic version of what is happening to, you know, the rest of the city. And I and the, it reminded me of this, you know, this symbiotic link between people and their environment. And I wanted to ask you about that because I feel like there there is a fascination there that between you know some like the, the macrocosm and the microcosm, like how we you know we are our environment and our and, and our problems are reflected in our environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, for one thing, like Ahilia and Iravan have so much anger, you know, with each other for the world, you know, for the for their circumstances, and and rightfully, like it, you know, they they have like done things. To each other and the world has done things to them that you know has incited that anger but I mean that is very much reflected in the world itself like the the climatic phenomenon is called an earth rage it's like it's it's furious like you know you kind of imagine it as a lot of earthquakes and storms and it just raises over their planet and you know destroys their jungle before it stops and starts again and I find that that's the nature of anger often is you know it it never just kind of fades away it kind of comes back and then it comes back and maybe it's it's less and then sometimes it's more and you know that that kind of thing happens um and the and the trilogy is also called the rages trilogy so there is definitely a lot of their emotion etc is is very much mirrored in their world um and for me that was a conscious decision i think i think when i was kind of writing it i just i I put myself behind their heads, and you know, kind of, for lack of a better way to phrase this, became a Heliya and a Ravan. Each time I was kind of writing their chapters, and the world kind of evolved from that. So we we always see the world through their lens. It's a, um, it the story is told from both of their points of view. So it's it's interesting because if you kind of think of the question, like say the story was told from somebody else's point of view who maybe didn't have as much anger, would they reflect that anger back into their world? Yeah, sure, the, the phenomenon would still be called an earth rage and that was a decision I as an author took, but if you kind of take me out of the equation, would they have a different interpretation of their world? So I I think this mirroring across chaos is something that that is very deliberate through the trilogy as well, as you kind of read book two and book three, you'll see you know, how it almost expands on the themes and just the these little points in book one are kind of mirrored a little bit more in book two until book three kind of becomes this overarching thing this was all intentional um, and that that mirroring is also very much a part of hindu philosophy as well and that's something that ahili and iravan constantly do they're just mirroring each other except what they see in themselves is not what they see in each other but to a to an outsider person like maybe a reader you'll be like oh my god you both are so similar which is why you get people saying like I just want to knock their heads together because look at you so yeah
1: yeah they are they are similar but I I love them both equally
2: (laughs) It, it's 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 nice to hear that because i i often get readers who are either like very heavily on team Aravan and they're like oh my god ahilia sucks so they're on team ahilia and they're like oh my god Aravan sucks and i'm like <laughs> that's that's what the book is like doing to you i had beta readers who would do that too um two different groups of beta readers one of and they would constantly fight amongst each other but who is better ahilia or Ravan? and i'm just like okay this is cool i'm enjoying this this is <laughs> this is exactly what's supposed to happen <laughs>
1: Well, I feel like uh, since we're we're right in the middle of like talking about your characters here, and you mentioned Helia, who is a very angry, very angry woman indeed, um, and there's there's a lot of rage in the book, um, but her anger really um, comes to the fore, like it's on every page of her chapters, and even when she's not, we're not in her head, you can still feel it like emanating. And I just thought this is really interesting because we don't often see women's anger uh, quite so openly it's very when women are angry they tend to be portrayed um in very you know one of two ways or very restricted ways we're not allowed to express anger there's there is a social there's a socially permissible way to express anger um and that is usually kind of in a done in a patriarchal model so mm-hmm. I feel like you know to see a, a visibly angry woman on the page is is really it's really positive it's really refreshing but i wanted to, to kind of ask you about um her character and the fact and and why she's so angry and the, is it to do with the fact that you know she's a scientist and yet is constantly dismissed i mean that is something you know, regardless of her gender in our world that is something women particularly are seeing all the time um, that we're still struggling to inhabit professional roles as well as you know domestic roles and that you know there are still these restrictions on you know how we can be seen to do both and do both well so I just want to ask you about that and how that um, kind of fed into her character.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a good question because I haven't actually thought about it like that before um, because again, I've been too close to both the characters in the world while writing it. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of these decisions just seem to happen in the course of telling the story but not something that I've quite thought about. But to kind of see this question laid out like this, yeah, I think Ahelia does personify a lot of that. Um, I, I am a queer woman of color and I, I live in North America and I've certainly experienced that kind of, you know, discrimination firsthand so a lot of my my own experiences found their way into ahilia in many ways you know um whether it comes to like jobs and things like or or even that my name is not necessarily pronounceable to a lot of people living in this country um or on this continent sometimes but yeah like ahilia is dismissed a lot of times you know in her job because her job is not something that according to the powers that be helps survival at all and you know her entire position to go look for survival out in the jungle is um, is a fool's errand, and so there's that le- that level of anger for her. But then she's also angry with her husband, rightfully, because at the start of the story, Ahelia and Iravan have a huge falling out. Um, actually, that's how the story starts, and throughout the course of the story as well, you see how Ahelia, as a non architect, has to deal with so much, so many microaggressions that her husband, as an architect, doesn't have to deal with. Like the world is very much designed to you know, give a lot of power and privilege to people like her husband, um, to architects. And, and she sees all of that, even if other non-architects around her don't necessarily see it. Like if they've, you know, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, they, they, they believe that it is only because of architects that they survive. But Ahelia, she, she knows that history to a large extent. She studies stuff. She thinks of, you know, um, hypothetical situations. She's an archaeologist. She takes herself seriously. Uh, and she's a brilliant, brilliant woman. And, she never gets that kind of acknowledgement which, you know, her husband Iravan gets for doing things that 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 he does, which might be equally good or maybe sometimes even easier, but he gets a lot of credit for them. And I think that happens to a lot of women in our world as well. Like there are many, many different roles we occupy and we have to do all of them perfectly well and amazingly only to get sometimes half the credit half the pay if that. So I think there's a lot of rage that Ahilia rightfully has in the story. Um there's also you know you you raise, you raise this beautiful question of um we don't we don't often see that kind of anger um in stories or it's um it's not as overt um I think f- I, I actually saw this on a TV show the other day that women have a hard time expressing their um, anger unless it's in relation to somebody else's oppression. Like, you know, if we, if we feel a lot of guilt for our anger to be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that, should have behaved better. And Ahilia rarely feels that. I think for me, that was also a bit of freedom in being able to portray Ahilia like that because she is so free in her anger. And yeah, she also sees it through other people, like her the, the oppression of her kind. But also, she's free, and I allowed herself to be that. And for me, that was um, that was freedom for myself because at least on paper, I could show the kind of rage that I often feel. But you know, because I'm a functioning member of the society, I don't allow myself to really express. Yeah, it's it's interesting to kind of think of Aelia like that. It it also brings me to mind of. Um, not that this was necessarily something I was thinking of while writing, but again, like I am, I'm a whole person with a whole lot of influences in my own life. So maybe this kind of crept its way in the story. It makes me think of goddess Durga, who is um, one of the personifications of the goddess in Hindu philosophy and Hindu mythology. And Durga is a, a creature of rage. Like she, you know, goes on a rampage because nothing can really contain her because something pisses her off as a goddess. And she is just, all rage. And it's interesting to me that there is, you know, a deity like that in Hindu mythology. There's room for that. There's room for that kind of personification of rage from a woman. And I think in some way it found its way into ahilya too.
0: Yeah, I really love that you, you have someone who is able to really express their anger and not just from... The female perspective but absolutely that because yeah as you as you say like women we're not allowed to express our anger because once we do we're a bitch or if we do express it and it is in defense of others or you know in the cause of just furthering women's rights or just equal rights you know we're called feminazis or we're called you know it's Angry feminists, rather like you know, it's like nasty it's- women. <laughs> exactly. <Not> nasty women. <laughs> yeah. As soon as we actually express any anger, it's just used as a way to basically keep us down more. Like, oh well, you know, look at you—you you can't even control your emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it's so frustrating. So I think it's important for. People to be able to read stories where women are allowed to be angry. um, I think that's that's really important.
2: (laughs) And not be and not be censured for it. I think that's another thing I kind of put into the story is Mm Ahila is angry a lot, and so is Aravan. They're both angry. But one of the things that Aravind says to Ahilia, he's, you know, he never, he never says, and you know, he never says anything like why are you angry except he understands her anger, even accepts it. And he accepts his own anger too. Both of them do. And he says to her, anger is honest, at least, you know, at least it's an honest emotion because it, through the course of the story, the both of them are really trying to find honesty, a way back into honesty, into each other and into themselves. And anger is that emotion that they kind of do it through. Ahilia is angry a lot, but there's, no one who tells her to stop being angry. You know, there's no one who says your anger is wrong. And I really like that because her anger isn't wrong. It, it, it's hers. It is hers to do with what she wants. It is an honest emotion that she is feeling. The basis of that anger sometimes can be flawed. And that's something that, you know, people question it, whether it's survival or, you know, her relationship with Iravan and all of those things, but nobody's censuring her for her anger. And um, and again, this is one of those things that I'm kind of like looking back and thinking about it now. I'm like, huh, I guess I put that in, didn't I? And and maybe that part of it was wishful thinking, because as you said, like, you know, women, you know, we feel an emotion and suddenly it's like, oh, my God, that emotion itself becomes this big thing of why. And, you know, you shouldn't be feeling it and all of those things. But Ahilia never comes across that. She's angry and people accept that. And then, you know, they kind of like m- not necessarily move past it, but deal with it. Um and and I really like that. I like that anger in her world, and for her and Iravan, and just in the world of the Rages trilogy, is not necessarily a bad emotion. It's an honest emotion, and sometimes it gets shit done. It totally does. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I feel like, my God, I could totally talk about women's anger um, for the rest of the episode, I'm sure. But because we have you here, um, I really wanted to just touch on the amazing magic system you've created for this world. You've referenced it a little bit and you've also mentioned that you took um, Hindu philosophy as an inspiration, um, you know, for the structure of your world and for the people who live in it. Like, could you talk us a little bit about, about the magic, about the moment, about this idea of alternative consciousness that I found so fascinating?
2: Sure. Yeah. So in the world of The Surviving Sky, essentially you have um, architects like Iravan who um, manipulate plant consciousness in order to create architecture, which sounds super arcane, uh, but (laughs) it all makes sense in the book, I promise. And the way that they kind of see this happen is their visions are split into two. And in their first vision, they see whatever, you know, people walking, talking, just like regular characters do and non-architects do. And in their second vision, which is a more esoteric thing, almost like a vision in their mind kind of a thing, they occupy this extra dimensional reality, which can be, um, which is seen as like this universe full of stars. And each star is a plant's existing state of consciousness. So in one star, you might see like this water lily kind of frozen in like a form of decay. And in another star, you might see this water lily like blooming. And so infinite such states exist because there are infinite such plants in their world and in their city. And the way they create architecture is by spinning these like constellation lines almost between stars. So like weaving these different stars together in like a pattern. And that pattern of architecture that they create in the moment, which is this extra-dimensional reality, manifests itself in in reality, um, therefore creating architecture in their world. So, I mean, there's a few things in the surviving sky which are very directly related to Hindu philosophy. One of them, of course, is that consciousnesses are connected, and that they are still con- they're connected, but they are still very discrete you know, consciousnesses themselves. And and like not that this is any kind of spoiler at all, because I mean, anyone who knows a little bit about Hindu philosophy will see this coming from a mile away. But it is that idea behind, you know, a a single consciousness um, connected to the universal consciousness um, or, or the consciousness of um, of the cosmos. So in Hindu philosophy as well, like you don't really have very much emphasis on um, heaven and hell and that kind of thing, but you do have an emphasis on birth and rebirth. And that is also part of the surviving sky. Like um, birth and rebirth is a very understood part of the world You know, people die, their bodies, you know, go back into earth essentially, but their consciousness is born again in a different form, in a different body. So... For me, like this was, again, I think a lot of these concepts are so abstract. And again, in Hindu mythology, that's the reason you have like a billion gods and goddesses, because they are personifications of a lot of these philosophies. And how else do you make these supremely abstract philosophies um, palatable and memorable? The fact, you know, so that they endure for like thousands of years. How do you do that except put it into stories in understandable form? So in a manner of speaking, I kind of did that too with this magic system, with the moment kind of showing the interconnectedness of consciousness and um, the fact that it looks like stars, etc. is very much a nod to uh, the universal uh, nature of consciousness that exists in Hindu philosophy. And then all of the birth, rebirth as well, of course, came from Hindu philosophy. So I feel like I kind of picked those aspects of Hindu philosophy, which, you know, made sense for this book and and kind of just created a metaphor for them, which then became this world building element, like the moment, etc.
1: It's just a very different form of, you know, what we think of as magic. You know, when, when you see magic in uh, many speculative books, you know, you, you very much think of Wizards and and people throwing fireballs at each other and and it's it's just really even when you know you have a slightly different magic system it, it's still yours is still very unique and I really like the fact that it has this element of spirituality to it and this interconnected even the idea of architecture is just it's it's it, it's like a step removed from um, the idea of mages walking around having you know fire at their fingertips
2: yeah yeah i that, that was a conscious decision i will say i i i mean i no no grouse against like mages and like you know fire bending and that kind of thing like it's those stories of that place etc and i enjoy reading them but that's not necessarily something i wanted to write like i think my my interest is very much in writing like original like building original worlds etc but but also i f- like science fiction fantasy is such a rich genre for the sheer number of things that you can do and it's it's almost a shame that you often see just these tropes kind of appearing over and over again in publishing when people like architects and archaeologists like those can be magical beings etc right like it's for me when I was kind of thinking and again like a lot of these elements kind of came together in the course of actually writing the story but for me, like architects, it's it's such a common word. You have architects in our world too, like obviously, but it's a, the understanding of what it is in the Rage's trilogy is completely different. Um it's not even they're not even capitalized, you know, it's not like mages with a capital M. It's just architects with a small A, really. I wanted to take something which was normal in our world and convert that profession or, you know, just that that state of being into a magical possibility. And and that's how architects and archaeologists kind of came together in, in the world of the surviving sky. Um, I find that fascinating. I mean, on, on, on the, on the really fun stories where, you know, you don't think the main character has that kind of power or the profession itself doesn't have that kind of power. And it does. It's, I, f- I find that so cool. Like, architects having power you know archaeologists being part of this like magic system and world it's or or engineers and in the world of surviving sky you have um, this group of engineers who call sun engineers because because they their profession came out of a need for solar power except that's not how technology evolved because technology hardly ever evolves in the way you think it would so I I find th- I find those spaces really really interesting. I was reading um, I've just finished reading um, the Founders trilogy by Robert Jackson Bennett, and and it has some of you know the the regular tropes of like thieves and heists and all of that, which is super super fun. But the magic system is it's almost like cyberpunk with like a epic fantasy kind of mixed in and like coding etc. And it's science fantasy too, and it's incredible. Like for me, those are the most fun stories because. They make me see the genre and our own world slightly differently. And I think, um, I think that's what science fiction and fantasy does best is it kind of through, through an escapist world and through these cool, awesome, like actiony plots, it allows us to see our world slightly differently. And, um, and to do that through a magic system, which, which is also extremely different. Like you, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a comp like that. It's it's just a nice way for the genre to kind of grow in a in a in a direction that maybe it doesn't have that much of.
0: Yeah, I love that where you're talking about the you know, the science fantasy and I quite like it when these magic systems are kind of in a in a way linked back down to something that you wouldn't think of as magical because it's kind of a way for us to create wonder again. You know, because if you think, if you actually think about it, you know, an architect, you know, building incredible thing, designing, you know, it's just their imagination let free, but we don't have really a sense of wonder anymore for about, for these things. And, and by bringing magic into something, which is, you know, more science-based, fact-based, real world sort of grounded, you, you have that sort of childlike Uh, fresh eyes which is is really nice to see
2: yeah yeah it's it's um i again like no no you know shade towards any of the you know water bending fire bending kind of magic systems any of those elemental magic systems etc but you're right like having having Imbuing an existing profession or an existing role in our world with magic, I think, also allows us, you know, in many ways, um, Surviving Sky in the world of Rage Trilogy is so futuristic in its like approach as well. It maybe shows for possibilities of what our world and these professions, et cetera, can also evolve into. I think often we just get stuck in looking at a role for the way that it has been you know, forever, and not understanding what it can potentially be in the future. And to tie this back to your very early question about like climate change and, you know, how to how we kind of imagine ourselves out of that, you see a lot of like dystopian fiction when it comes to climate fiction as well. And climate change is happening. It's real. It's occurring. Now we have to kind of deal with it. There's, we can't reverse it. Like we, we can't fully reverse it, I should say. And even if we all kind of agreed to, which we didn't, even for the global pandemic, like even if everybody kind of agreed to, it, it would take many, many, many years. But there is a way to reimagine our reality. And if we can do that by reimagining ourselves and even existing roles in our world, I think that's the beginning. So there's almost again, like to kind of go back to what you had said earlier, you know, imagining what, what these roles can be in the future. The question between leaving the planet and staying on it, doing, you know, what we can to control the world for our own better and for the betterment of the world itself versus abandoning it um, and escaping from it like the architects do. I think there's an element of that as well in the roles that we imagine if, you know, we just want this magical mage, you know, wizard kind of coming in and solving all our problems, the chosen one coming in, solving our problems, which a lot of science fiction fantasy does kind of do that versus here we are, this is what we've been given. What do we do with it? I think there's there's a dialogue regarding that happening in the surviving sky as well, at least like, you know, thematically in, in a meta way kind of connecting it to all many other books um, that exist in science fiction fantasy in terms of, the mirror it holds to our own world and how
1: we kind of reimagine our own world. I had a bunch of other questions, but actually, I think finishing this on the idea of reimagining our reality is perfect. And I think it suits the book down to the ground. So <laughs> I just want to say, like, thank you so much so much for coming along i'm so glad we um, managed to um, get you along to talk about the surviving sky because um, i love it i think lots of other people will love it uh, when it's out and yeah uh, i'm just yeah i'm really excited As you can see i'm just really excited to um, <laughs> get more people to read it because it's like one of the most original books possibly the most original book i read last year um, so thank you so much for joining us thank you so much you're very kind i'm super excited um
2: the book is coming out and so happy to be on the podcast with you
0: breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy houndsom please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of breaking the glass slipper